Hello and welcome back after a small Christmas hiatus to the Game Pit. This is episode 125. I'm Sean and here's Ronan. Hello everyone, you're very welcome to the Game Pit. Hello Sean. Hello Ronan. Hello and a happy new year to you. New year, new pit. And to you and to all our uh, pit dwellers, that's what we're going to call them. I don't think we should call them that. I think pit crew was probably a little bit nicer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're a pit dweller I like your scrapings in the corner where you've decided to hold yourself up uh, listen I'll, I'll, I'll fashion something out of them one day <laughs> it'd be anything you've got to do with fashion so back for a picking over the bones episode as promised Sean six meteor reviews for our listeners this time uh, five and one, one slightly less so, but yeah, <laughs> definitely more so than last time. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're not having that, no. You're not going to talk about the reviews. No, not at all. No, I'm just going to. I like it. I don't like it. Right. The next game will be reviewing. Yes, <laughs> that's that's our style, isn't it? <laughs> that's about as good as we get. You've okay. given the gold away there. <laughs> so, are you excited? We're going to crack on. Are you going to give any general ideas? We're we looking good, bad, mixed bag this time. I think it's a fairly positive bag, Ronan. To be fair, I think last time maybe not so much. We had a we had a uh, no, one disagreement, and then there was a couple of bad games in there as well. But uh, yeah, I think I think we're mostly going to agree. That's my prediction. Do you? I think there's okay. one. I think there's one game we're not going to agree on. And one game. I thought there was. Three, we might disagree. Actually. Oh, really? Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a feeling. We'll see. We'll see. I like that we don't talk too much about the reviews anymore because we used to almost thrash it out over the phone. Not thrash it out exactly. Exactly say what we're going to say, but you'd have an idea what the other person was going to say. Oh, actually, no, no. I'm looking at another one. There's definitely, there's definitely one, <laughs> one on my list that you don't like. We'll see. We'll see. Let's not keep them in suspense anymore. And as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there into the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download it, I won't say that anymore. I'll just do YouTube. And don't forget, we do have a YouTube channel where we do our pit stop videos, which are quick overviews on many, many different games and also convention coverage. Let's begin this episode with a review of Underwater Cities. One to four players taking two hours, Vladimir Sushi from Delicious Games. In Underwater Cities, each of the players are looking to develop their own small network of underwater cities by building the cities themselves, connecting them on a grid with roads, building buildings that will supplement those cities, possibly connecting to outside metropolis and your building up your own card tableau possibly and how you're going to do this is each turn you're going to choose an action on the board and you're going to play a card now the actions do various things but they come in three different colors as do the cards if you play a card that matches the color of the action you've chosen you will also get to activate that card or play it into your tableau and the general things you'll be doing are going to be gaining the resources available in the game building those cities upgrading the buildings that you've built building the road network possibly using cards around in your tableau or taking more cards to give you extra resources or scoring opportunities there are three eras in the game at the end of each era you're going to produce resources you're going to have to feed all your cities and then you're going to score some points and some of those cards offer you end game scoring opportunities sean underwater cities it's all aiming for 
a tightness of action in that there are two sides to the board depending on how many players you have is going to say which side of the board you're going to play on and it's very much a hunt to get in first add to the most valuable action spaces depending upon which are most valuable to you at the time because that will change as you go on where exactly you are in your development of your network it is, it's, it, and it's also running, it's, it's that opportunistic, isn't it? It's, you've got to make the most of what you've got, because, as I found, you don't always get the cards that match the action, so straight off the bat, you've got Quick that. question, how many green cards can a man draw? <laughs> <in a row? laughs> apparently, limits, apparently <laughs> about 90% of all the cards he drew. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I found out that I was drawing a lot of green cards, and I then had to make that interesting decision, and it is an interesting decision, whether I maximise the green colour moves and place them on uh, matching spaces and get that extra action, or do I really want the actions on the oranges and the red spaces? So there, there in itself is a really interesting decision, Ronan. Ah, did you find that limitation interesting? Because the limitation is the fact that you're top-decking. You've got a three-card hand. One of the clever things they do is that in certain ways, or by using your cards or action spaces, you can draw more cards during a turn. And no matter how many you end with, you must start your next turn with three in your hand, which is a nice way of keeping the game moving. But with only a three-card hand and the limit of top decking, I know you call it interesting. I'm not sure that was the most interesting part of the game for me. More frustrating. Oh, no, but see, I think that's where we always differ. I kind of like to play on the seat of my pants. You like a controlled plan and you like your end of game moves. So I, I really enjoyed that aspect. But there's also ways of getting much more cards into your hands. You can pick up things that give you extra cards and let you cycle through that deck a lot quicker. So there's ways to mitigate it. It's definitely if you're trying to go down one route you're going to get yourself stuck at some point. You have to have flexibility. It's not always possible to have one card of each colour in your hand, but definitely what you don't want to do, play account dependent. You don't want to leave yourself with only one or two actions that are valid to what's in your hand and your strategy because they may well get taken before it comes back around the table to you. So you've always got to be a little bit of a generalist, Sean, but I think the game also rewards that like it so you, you get bonus points for example for having one of each of the different three types of buildings now they'll give you like food to help you feed your people or they'll give you extra science to let you build or the desalination plant will give you money which will let you do loads of different things like build and get cars and stuff like that but it's it encourages you not to be very specific down one route in one way yeah, but, but some of the end game scoring cards. Yeah, that's what to I was. To be specific, so. that was the way I was getting to. So, in my very first game of this, you you basically you pointed out that the end of game scoring cards are quite powerful, and you've really got to get involved in them. And to get involved in them, you've kind of got to know what direction some, at least some of your game and some of your scoring is edging towards, so that you can pick up those end of game scoring cards. So, yeah, you. You've got to sort of be a generalist in, in certain type parts, but I think overall you've got to know roughly where you're going. Those endgame scoring cards, there's a deck off them, I think it's 10 or 12, something like that, and six of them are available in any one game. And they'll reward you, you'll be able to hand in, for example, like the main building material, Steel Plus, you'll be able to hand those in for points at the end. Or if you have a certain amount of money, you'll score a certain number of points and things like that. Or they'll score you for each of your upgraded kelp farms, let's say, for example, because you can build the basic buildings, then you can upgrade them and they'll produce more for you, but also then they give you this chance for endgame points. And 
I found that odd. I'm going to be honest with you because the game's really tight. You are always running out of resources. You will always be resource tight. There's no chance you'll get through a whole era, not at the end, be like, oh, I'd like to build some cities, but I've got nothing to build them with. And also, every action feels tight, and you're having to give up actions and money to grab these cards. And then the cards hold up a place in your hand until you play them. That costs three money. And because the economy is so tight, the money you spend at the beginning snowballs and becomes more money as you go throughout the game. But if you choose not to spend that money at the beginning, you can get stuck. And it's the same with all the resources. And if you choose to spend precious time at the beginning to grab those scoring cards, you can get yourself stuck because you're just slightly below the break-even line. And this game is tight like that until you get it flowing by the third era. But if you leave it too long then maybe the one card that suits the thing that you were trying to do, as well as just generalisation you have to do, it gets taken before you. And it is enjoyable, but it's a bit odd. This real tension of, when do I take that in-game scoring card? Because it's vital I get one or two, but getting them too early will really screw me. Yeah, and it, you also, every action f- feels like it really matters in this game. So you never quite want to waste that action to pick up that card, even though you know you have to at some point. So it's that timing, and it's also that sort of frustration of having to give up a, a double action or an action to, that does what you want it to do within the game. That same thing with the titles of actions is you can build a card tableau for yourself but you can't activate it unless you choose an action or player card that lets you use an action card. And they can only be used once each era. You don't know if you're going to get the cards to be able to do what you want to do. There's another thing whereby you, there's a variety of Black Ops cards in the game. And what they do is they'll activate every time you don't match your action to your card color you play. So instead of getting whatever's on the card, you can use all your Black Ops cards. Which sounds really handy until... Not all the cards come out in the game. You're definitely not going to see all the cards. So you might start getting one or two Black Ops cards and then never see another one. And every time I feel like I've got that strategy going, Sean, it's always a tightrope in that, oh, but now things haven't quite fallen in place for me. So where I was trying to head, I have to forget about and head off somewhere else. Yeah, it sets itself up as a really tight Euro and lots of things to do and never been able to quite do as much as you want to do. But then, yeah, you're absolutely right. You've got that absolute random in that you could go down a path and for no fault of your own, you just won't see the card or you won't get the correct things into your hand or someone else might nick the scoring card from under your nose. So you're right, it's, it kind of, it's, it's kind of two worlds colliding. <laughs> in, in splendour and beauty, I don't know, that was quite a galactic <laughs> metaphor. Okay. Two more points I wanted to make. Sometimes to me, what I was actually doing in the game and my actions felt a bit disjointed from the VPs. Like, I was struggling a lot to build cities and get networks, and they'll score me some points. But actually, what I really need to do was get 17 steel plus by the end to hand it all in to score 17 points, and that's what was going to win me the game. Because, like, the, the city and network scoring was quite similar between all the players, and I played it five times, and no one was massively different in building, like, the number of cities they ever had out, stuff like that. It doesn't feel like that in the game scoring again doesn't quite tie in with what you're doing throughout the game, which is quite yeah. Thematic. Because you're not like the game isn't get loads and loads of steel blasts. It's get some and then turn it into something. Yeah. Oh, but at the end you'll get loads of and you're like, 
it's not like there's a go to steel plus place where it builds up or you can do something clever to get the steel plus you can build the science labs but i mean that's just one example it could be the money one it could be the other ones and it's like mm. i'm not it felt disjointed i don't know i'm not i'm not phrasing it very well one slight negative that I found about the game, and this, this is with the, the, the heavy caveat that it is a startup company, they're a new company, but some of those components, Ronan, when, when you did open that box, so we, we had a little bit of a chuckle at the player mats and things like that. Although the actual cities look quite cool because they're this, these little sort of domes on, on the plastic domes on the board, and they, they look cool, but everything else is a bit papery, paper thin. I don't know. I mean, I think they got a lot of things. I think the iconography is really clear. Mm-hmm. The colours are all really clear. I quite like some of the artwork in it on the cards, although it's very small. I think all the important things are probably all right. I think the cities and the buildings are all clear and they look nice and you can tell where everything is. M- maybe only the thinness of those player mats. Would yeah, be the, the, only the complaint card stock isn't great either. But uh, yeah, but I as never I said, really it's card stock. I'm a bit heavy, idiot. Just... Heavy, <laughs> heavy caveat because it is a startup company, and they, and they will have had to cut costs at some stage because they don't have that capital. I know that you, or at least you did. You agreed that people are saying it's maybe one or two rounds too long. I do agree with that. I still agree with that. I don't think it's as prominent as my first few games, but still, I find that once my engine is set up, I'm ready for the end of the game a couple of rounds, around maybe two rounds before the game actually ends. And I feel like I'm just treading water, waiting for the end of the game. I'm going to throw this at you as a sort of a counterpoint. Go on, then. I think that each era begins with a, a flurry of activity, because you've just got your production, you start the game with some stuff, and after second, after production time, you've got all your production stuff, you've made it, yeah, and then you have rich, a few yeah. things you feel like you can do. Yeah, Sorry? Yeah. yeah, you're rich, you've got all your stuff. Yeah. yeah, and then you're making, and you've really got options, and then you really feel like you're making choices. You say, like, okay, should I use the kelp for this, or should I use it for that? Should I use this money for this, or should I use it for that? And then as the era goes on, and they're four rounds, three rounds, three rounds, as the era goes on, you run out of those things and your choices start to limit in so i don't know that it's a choice it's a length issue as much as it's a a rhythm of the game issue it's a burst of activity narrowing down to nothing a burst of activity narrowing down to nothing and when you get to that third era the things cost so much that they have to produce twice for you to really get anything back from them you're kind of looking at it going, well, I'll spend two of those to just get two back during production. And it became becomes a case of, well, have I got anything productive to do in these last two rounds? So I'm not, I don't know how pedantic this has been, but I don't think it's the length. I think the fact it's the way the eras develop and narrow down towards the end makes it feel like an anticlimax. Yeah, it is too long, but it's not for the game, as, you, as you're saying. It's just the rhythm of the game, it, it does that. But I think after the third time it's happened, you kind of you're done. You, you you you've been there twice before. You just want the end of the game. You you know what your end of game scoring is at this at this point, and you just you're kind of eager for the end of the game at that at that stage. Maybe the third era could have been different to the other two eras, uh, with maybe different options or suddenly like third era cards. Yeah, just change it up slightly. Come with a choice because some of them you look at them, you go, "That's that card's no use to me. It's not going. It doesn't fit what I'm trying to do." 
Yeah, or maybe have have the the end of game scoring cards only available in the third era. So you've mm-hmm. got you've got that little bit of a scramble for for those. You're building up towards them. Well, imagine how nasty that would get, though. <laughs> you love that, though. Imagine the fight for the Federation track. So there's a track, Federation track, that you can go up via various things in the game. Whoever's highest up will be first player next round, and and so on downwards. So that'd be tooth and nail. Right, finish us off. What are your final thoughts on Underwater Cities? So I went from being very underwhelmed by just the looks of the game Underwaterwhelmed? To, uh, no, yeah, that was poor. By your standards, you. even. That was poor. Thank you. <laughs> so it had a lot of buzz, and I, but I wasn't buying into it. But Ronan bought the game. We played it a couple of times, and then all of a sudden I found that I had loads of options. It was that... It was that blissful agony of wanting to do loads and loads of things and not being able to do it but really having to exercise your mind to to maximize what you are trying to do yes there was a couple of disconnects in terms of the game was a little bit too long i felt and some of the end game scoring didn't really tie into the theme theme of the game and what you were doing within the game structure as we've discussed but for me underwater cities is a very strong game thoroughly enjoy it and i I see i I enjoy it more each time because i understand it more each time i think that first time was a bit oh god what's happening here but now i understand it a little bit better so i'm enjoying it a bit more i think that it does some things i really like in a two-hour euro and some things i really don't like i don't like the timing of the eras and the ebbing away to nothing i prefer something to build to a crescendo i like the fact that you're in control of your own cards but then i don't like that how little control you've got with the top decking the tightness of the actions and the lack of time you feel like you have to do things or the lack of resources i do like it's not you haven't got 100 of everything you haven't got limitless it's not wide open it's every single thing that you spend counts when i spend this have i got the ability to get more for next era so i can actually carry on doing things and producing all of that is challenging and i very like that it is two hours long and it's very tactical, and you have to be aware of that. So therefore, it won't be too all taste. If you like something that's more strategic, and you can set your plan at the beginning and follow it all the way through, certainly not the game for that. It is a good tight Euro. I enjoy it a fair amount. It's not top, top echelon, but it's definitely worthy of more place for me, and that's Underwater Cities. Okay, so our second game of the episode is Gugong. It's designed by Andrea Steading and coming from Game Brewer and Tasty Minstrel Games. The game is set in China in 1570 in the Ming Dynasty, where corruption penalties are very high, but the officials have got around the bribery by exchanging gifts. So the briber will give a gift and receive one from the bribee of a lower value. And that's basically what you're doing within the game. We are powerful families looking to gain influence and power by exchanging gifts with these officials. So the board itself is rife with action areas, each containing a gift card with the values of one to nine. Each player will then get a hand of gift cards And then you're going to move on to the various phases of the game. You have the morning phase, the day phase, and the night phase. 
So generally what you're going to be doing is playing a card of a higher value to an area with a lower value card. You're going to do the area action and also if there is an action on the card you're going to do the, the action on that card. So what are the action areas? You uh, can travel around to get bonuses. You have the Great Wall of China and that's where you're going to give support to the Emperor and try to win influence there by getting the most support onto the wall. You have Intrigue which is used in conjunction with the Great Wall in terms of when you score the Great Wall, the Intrigue track becomes into its own, but also it's used as a tiebreaker throughout the game. You have an area in which you can collect Jade, which is the most precious material in the game. And you also have Decrees. Now these Decrees can break the rules or give you bonuses. And you have the Grand Canal, where you get to fill a boat, move the boat along and get bonuses or special powers. Last up, you have the Palace of Heavenly Purity, where the Emperor lives himself. Now, this is especially important because you have to get to the end of the track in the palace. Otherwise, you cannot win the game. If you fail to do so, then you are out of the game. That's pretty much the morning phase. Sorry, that's pretty much the day phase. In the night phase, now I didn't talk about the morning phase. In the morning phase, you're going to roll three dice, which are your destiny dice. And what you're going to be trying to do is get cards into your hand when you're swapping them that match the numbers on the destiny dice. And in the night phase, you see if you've got the most of these and you're going to get rewards. You're going to get points for decrees, the order that you finished in the palace, and then you've got a jade track at the end of the game. A very quick overview of Gu Gong Ronan. I think you will agree with me. I think you're not going to agree with me on some of these points, but you will agree with me. It's a very, very beautiful game. Yes, it is very pleasant to the eye, and I very much like the art style and the presentation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and there ends Ronan's <laughs> positive thoughts. Not entirely. Let me say, I didn't follow it it was a kickstarter i didn't really know anything about it you can't follow every game right puria actually gave me a copy of it very kindly of him for for various reasons and you got a copy did you kickstart it is that right i did kickstart it yes okay so when the two you introduced it to me i then was like oh what is this game i suddenly got had a look at it looked at the idea of the fact that you had to plan ahead and manage this limited hand of cards and you only go to certain areas and the tightness of it all and that idea absolutely triggered for me and i remember turning around to you and going oh i really want to play gugon this looks like it's going to be really exciting it's a very very interesting concept I, I i agree that exchange of cards always having to better that card on the board and obviously the the cycling of the cards within all the different players i agree with you because i know you're going to bring up that there was some problems with that and i agree with you to to a point but you do you want to you've agreed with a point i haven't made yet <laughs> <laughs> i know what you're going to say so you make your point and then i will tell you my thoughts Gugon the game theory is a winner. <laughs> Gugon the game in practice. I just got really frustrated by the limit limitation of the of the way it was implemented. And the fact that after one or two card plays, quite often you'd sit there with two cards in your hand and you look at the board and there was maybe one space you could go to because there was a six, a five, a seven, an eight, and you're sitting there with a four and a three. And there's one, two on the board. And then the game is then dictating what you must do. And it may be something that is in no way beneficial to yourself. 
Now you might say to me, okay, then therefore just play that three on another area to bring it down from an eight down to a three and get it recycling again. No problem. Only all the other players are likely to be in a similar situation, or most of them. One of them might, got, might have played, played well or got lucky and got loads of big cards in their hand. Therefore, they are then going to pile on the area you've opened up. And when it comes back to you, you'll be stuck with the low card, again, with very, very limited choice. Not good limited choice. Just that's the only place you can go. It's no good to me. Don't care. That's the only place you can go. Okay, the other thing you can say is then use the small card to pick up a big card, but there's not that many actions in the game. And if I have to do that two or three times, I'm going to throw myself right behind the learning curve and the, the achievement curve. And again, I'm opening that area up to everyone else. And it just felt really frustrating, Sean. See, I think that that does happen, but I think it happens to everyone. So you have a you have a small round, then you have a big round, and you have a small round, and you have a big round, and it's just it's just pinpointing those big rounds to maximise the effect, trying to make sure that you don't end up with too many low number cards in your hand, just so you've got that little bit of choice for for maybe. But your, once your you have rounds. low number cards, how can you do that? Well, because obviously one wrap wraps round to to a nine, doesn't it? So. But there's one or two nines in the and game. You, you can always you can always give up an action to to place down a lower value card and take a higher value. Why it felt unpleasant to me was I give up and do absolutely nothing on this turn, and then watch the other players pile on the place where I put that card. It's but, it, yeah, and it I just it. isn't I enjoyable. That's I see. I my first couple of games of this, I played it two player. I played it three player. And I, I had a very similar feeling to you, but then I started sort of thinking, right, okay, how do I stop this? And yeah, you do have to take a hit sometimes, but I think, and then I was watching the other players and everybody has that round where they just feel like they can't do anything. And it's just maximising the little rounds. It makes the difference in the overall scoring. We played with Rachel, who was brilliant at the game. She absolutely made sure that she never really didn't have any options moving forward she always made sure she had a good couple of cards different cards in her hand she manipulated the ones and the nines really well and I think she played a, a much more intelligent game than we did and I, and I kind of learned from her in that now I'm going to sound like I'm belittling Rachel here and I really don't mean to <laughs> who often destroys me at games destroyed me last night LY, beat me at Race for the Galaxy and the rest of it she had the starting player's hand of cards, the, the number one cards. And each time I've played, if you have that, because the starting sets of cards are set, the player who has the number one set of cards always gets off to a better start. And then it seems very hard to catch them. Those starting hands, to me, in my plays, are wonky. This is the bit where I do agree with you. I think the starting hands that, that are set in the game rules are slightly off. And I think you, you are at a slight disadvantage and you do have to work a lot harder if you're in certain rotation within the game. I looked at sort of four and five players and actually gets better the more for the four and five players. But we were two and three in that game. And yeah, it's, it's not as easy for sure. I'm not sure it does get better with four players. <laughs> oh, you played it four, have you? Yeah. Oh, okay. 
And the other thing I'll say to you, and you have played it more than I have, is there a valid strategy that doesn't centre around getting a load of decrees? I think decrees are very important, absolutely. Everyone can get those decrees. I think maybe the end of game scoring one is probably essential towards the end of the game. So it depends which ones come out, Ron, because there are a whole stack of these decrees and sometimes really good ones come out and they're obvious that you must go for those. Sometimes the ones that come out, they're meh. They're not going to change the game that much, but it can happen. It can happen for sure. You have to go for those decrees. For me, with Gugong, there's only four rounds in the game. Each player is going to have an unenjoyable one of those four rounds and it's a 90-minute game meaning each player is going to have 25 minutes of pure frustration when they're doing nothing in each 90-minute game. And that's not fun. It's too long to wait for one position to develop. If you really need to do a thing or you've aimed towards a thing and then someone suddenly plops an 8 down and you've got, you don't have a 9 and there are very few of them in the game and you cannot go there till someone else develops it, you're just stuck, you're stimmied and... There is no clever way around that. If a nine then appears, you can sure use a low card to get the nine. That goes in your discard pile. And more often than not, you've got to wait for that to come around the next round before you can go again. That's a quarter of the game away. And it's all too slow to develop. There's not enough ways to get out. There's not enough ways to be clever. There's not enough ways to mitigate what's going on around you. You can use your traveler at the top to pick up tokens, which will let you swap cards around and stuff like that on occasion but I think also of course you have to be able to get into that space to be able to do that and too many times I just felt damned up and stifled and I really struggled to find the fun in Gugon. So for me it's a game really of highs and lows. I think the bits that I enjoy are sometimes some of it is the bits that Ronan really finds frustrating. I started off very much finding it frustrating when I had a one and I just, there was no nines on the board I could really interact with. But then you you can give up those cards. You can do things to get cards into your hand for the for the subsequent rounds. And I started to find the puzzle of getting myself into a good position for the rest of the game quite interesting i really like the mechanism in itself i don't think it's perfect i think it needs tweaking but i do like the various actions on the board but the couple of things that i don't like these as i said the starting card hands need tweaking also i don't like the palace mechanism any game where you can lose the game by playing brilliantly and just missing out on one aspect always doesn't sit well with me but other than that, I find Gugong maybe not a great game, maybe not even a good game, but a very interesting concept and an interesting game. And I want to explore that game a little bit more before I really sort of decide whether I'm keeping it in my collection. And that's Gugong. We're definitely into Bizarro World here, where you're enjoying the really tight, tense game, and I'm not. <laughs> Something's going wrong there. Okay, game number three this episode is Guardians, designed by Callum Flores, a two-player 30-minute game from Plaid 
hat. It's two player. There's a, there's a claim it can be four player with teams, but not really. And the two players are going to draft a team of what are called supers, super powered individuals. And those teams are going to be battling over four locations, which will rotate as locations are claimed, to either defend or defeat something called Intergov. And you can be the rebels, basically, or, or the goodies, the guardians, until one of them earns nine VPs in order to win the game. The locations have got varied uh, VP values to them, and they also have uh, various effects when you fight at them. Each of the supers that you draft into your deck comes with six power cards and one ultimate card, which goes off to one side, which you can charge up as the game is played. When you play certain cards, it put charges on your three ultimate cards, and with enough charges on there, you get to use them during the game. You also get to put six basic cards into your deck, which are the same for every player every time. On your turn, you get to take three actions with your supers. You're going to move them from location to location. You can attack supers that are at the same location as yours. You can also draw cards, or you can use card effects. Quite often, that will exhaust your characters. If at the beginning of your round, you've got a character at a location that's not exhausted, and there is no opponent who's not exhausted at that location, then you get to move the control marker on each location one space towards yourself. Whenever you do enough damage to an opponent super to KO them, then that control marker will move two spaces towards yourself. And if it's at your space during your scoring phase at the end of your turn, then you get to claim that card. It will score you a various amount of points. And the more points it scores, the more moves it takes to claim it to your side. And it will immediately get replaced with another low as I said, the first person to score 9 VPs from those locations will be the winner of Guardians. Sean, it's another two-player game from Plaid Hat. I think they're attempting to just corner the market all by themselves. Yes, so it's let's start off by saying that uh, a two-player asymmetric games isn't my favourite type of game. It's not my favourite mechanism within games itself. Some of my favourite games are actually of this type, but they really do have to stand out from the crowd. So that was what was interesting going into this one. Would Guardians be that game that stands out from the crowd? Which which are your favourite ones? Let's give us a... Invaders? Oh, yeah, I've been playing it recently, yeah. Blood Bowl team manager. Oh yes, yes, good, yeah. And Omen Rain of War, Ronan. They're they're the three that kind of break the mold for me. That's a strong list. It's a strong list. This we can always throw Magic the Gathering in there. Yeah, Keyforge. Yeah. That would be Keyforge is probably yeah. Keyforge is probably the one that's most likely at the moment to sort of break into that sort of favourite collection of mine. Yeah, they've got crystal cans they've brought out and and the other two as well they've got. So this is this is a swamped market. You have to do something different in order to shine. So does Guardian shine? So the first thing I think that I would look to and really what attracted me to Guardians, and I do like this genre, I do like a two-player symmetric game, especially a card game, any card game with combos, I love me some LCGs and stuff like that, is look into the theme. In this one, what is very strange to me thematically is that the story is a couple of sentences long. There's an intergov. It doesn't tell you if intergov is good or bad or indifferent or despotic or wonderful. And each of these supers is not linked to a particular side. So you can draft any super to your team for any game. Anything can be fighting against each other. And it really makes me feel baseless. And it doesn't. I don't feel tethered into anything. I mean, you know... The game is called Guardians, but only one of you can play the Guardians. 
So you don't really know what intergov is, and you're guarding them. Why are you guarding them? And you kind of get the feeling that the game's called The Guardians, so the renegades that are attacking must be quite bad, and they must be the baddies of the fair. So it was it was a funny setup to start with. But then it's weird that any super can be on either side. Yeah, yeah. Like, people talk about the lore in Magic, okay? And I was listening to people talk about the story and how Magic are developing stuff, and when they go to certain planes and all this. I'm like, does anyone care about that in Magic? Does anyone really care about the lore? I mean, obviously some people do, but I don't. And then I realise, actually, I do. Because it gives some grounding. And when there's a theme to a run of magic, it gives me, oh, look, I'm doing the Greek god theme, which was from a few years ago, or whatever. Or I'm doing, like, the Eldritch theme. 100%. 100%. So, yeah. Like, it, you're playing Invaders. You you know who you are and what you're doing, and you know that you're playing slightly different. Blood Bowl, you know you're either the big bullies or the, the slick ones or the undead that are just going to keep getting up and coming back. But there is that underlying theme, you know what you're doing, how you're doing, and you know you're different. This one, you can mix and match. I'm not so different to you. It, why are we fighting? <laughs> yeah, why are we fighting? Who am I? Who am I? Why do I care? Start with that. If you're, if you're in any piece of media that you're involved in, who am I? Why do I care? I don't. <laughs> the locations themselves, bland. The stuff they do is not very interesting. It's more frustration than reward when you're at a location. Like quite often, they, they prevent you from doing things and stop you from doing damage yeah. as opposed to making things more interesting. It's, Again, it's, it's a roadblock. It's run-of-the-mill. It's run-of-the-mill. We've seen it. We've seen it many times and, and done better. I feel like I should just rush through my points and we can just summarise because we, we, we're agreeing with each other and it's true. I mean, like the ultimates are a nice idea to power them up and use them, but quite a few of them are quite situational. And yeah. for example, you might use them to knock out the opponent and all it does is shift a control marker two spaces and then they have two heroes unexhausted and you know, you'll get as many moves from doing that. So by doing nothing with your heroes, sometimes you would score more than actually KOing another hero and it all makes it feel inconsequential what you're doing i don't have a team the locations i don't care about they're just bland <laughs> the, the the way i score points is not very satisfying and meaty and linked the card effects are very situational it's really i'm puzzling as to why guardians exist sean do you want to summarize for us yeah okay so guardians for me ronan i think that as I said, I need that spark, that spark of imagination or originality. And I just didn't get that with Guardians. The art is fine, but it doesn't stand out. The theme is okay, but it doesn't stand out. In fact, no, the theme, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't bring you into the game. It doesn't give you a sense of who you are and what you are and why you're fighting. It is drowning in a sea of asymmetric battle games. And for my money, you really do have to stand out from a crowd. And it takes something special to do that. And I'm afraid, for me, Guardians just isn't that game at all. Yeah, I was really excited for it. But to save repeating too much what Sean just said, for me, misthemed, slight, lots of things feel inconsequential and too situational. And it's okay. I didn't have a bad time playing the game I just have no reason to ever go back to it and play it again when there are exceptional games of this genre available you've got to do better than this to make a, a splash in the market and that's Guardians and we will see you in the second half 
Okay, welcome back to part two of episode 125. I'm going to kick off proceedings with Scorpius Freighter, designed by Matthew Dunstan and David Short and coming from AEG. So, what is Scorpius Freighter? Well, we are in the Scorpius system, and the Scorpius system is dominated by a corrupt government. And we are freighter captains smuggling goods and info to thwart... There's not enough use of the word thwart in life, Ronan. I think we, we need a good thwart every now and again. You thwart me all the time. I do thwart you all the time. We are trying to thwart the oppressive government. On the table, we have a player board, which is going to represent our ship or our freighter. And with these, we have various crew cards, which are going to generate the actions that we're going to do. Now, on the central board, you have three rondels, and these have all of the available actions in the game. So gameplay is essentially, you're going to gain goods, you're going to complete contracts, you're going to upgrade your ship, and to do this, you have various actions. To do your actual actions, before we get into what they are, you have crew on your ship, as I said. Now, each of these crew allows you to do an action or gives you a point towards doing those actions. But you've also got to use them to move the ships around the rondels in the central board. That's how you're going to do the actions. Whatever crew you've got left that aren't being used to move, that's the amount of action points you have. And there's obviously ways to mitigate this. The actions themselves is you can upgrade your crew. You can give them abilities or extra hands. You can expand the storage. Now, it is very beneficial to get storage together because you're going to get more into your ship by doing this. You can upgrade your freighter itself. There's various items that you can place in there to give you a little ongoing bonus. You can pick up cargo. Now, as I said, if you get the cargo spaces next to each other, you're going to place a cargo in each space of each area. So it's beneficial to get them together. You can operate your freighter. That means use all the abilities and upgrades that you've placed on your ship. You can make a side deal, which is basically fulfill a small contract, or you can fulfill a large contract and you're going to get a long-term power plus a bonus at the end. The game is going to end when one of the rondel ships goes past the start space a certain number of times, depending on player numbers, and you're going to score points for the cargo completed contracts and the deals and scoring on your crew itself. Scorpius Freighter, Roman, was my top choice for the one I was most excited about going into Essen. I just loved the thoughts and there was a bit, I thought there was a bit of Firefly in there, being that freighter captain, choosing your crew, upgrading your ship and just flying around and doing those contracts. I remember us talking about it in our pre-Essen show, and I also remember saying, yeah, I've read the rule book, and I couldn't really work. It didn't really stick in my mind, so I can't really tell how excited to be about it. I'm going to have to play it to see. Now, putting back the curtain here for a second, fair play to you for going through all seven takes of that in trying to link the theme to the mechanisms while you were trying to explain the rules to this game. <laughs> Because upon playing, it became very, very clear to me why I couldn't work out what was going on. Because and there's no what theme. And the story is. <laughs> There is no theme. There's a theme. It's Oh, look, Guardians has got no theme, all right? 
or a theme that just does, is inconsequential. This is anti-theme. This is theme working to the detraction of the enjoyment of the game. <laughs> a theme in the Euro is there to give a coherency to the narrative, to give you some sort of impetus, and to help things make sense. Tick any of those boxes for you? I think the only time it made a little bit of sense was every time you pass the start marker with one of the ships on the rondels, it gets taxed and the government steps in and they clamp down a little bit and that made sense and that was kind of one of the ways to end the game is obviously when one of those ships fills up with cubes that the government place in. So that was the only time I thought, oh yeah, that's a little bit thematic, but not really. I didn't feel like I was that scallywag captain flying around the system, being a bit naughty and gathering stuff and picking my own crew because I didn't really. So firstly, that mechanism leads to all players putting a handbrake on when it gets to that point on the rondel. So the one thing it does, it makes sure that all three rondels get used because no one wants to cross that line and pay that cube. You don't have that many cubes. <laughs> like, no, I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. I'll just do something rubbish over here rather than pay that cube. <laughs> it's exactly. not, not 100% of the time, 80% of the time. You're like, I'm not doing it. I'm not pushing it over there. No. But it's not just, I didn't feel like Malcolm Reynolds, mate. Trying to teach that game and trying to make like the hand system make any sense to the players, it literally made it... Not a little bit harder, a lot harder. <laughs> and trying to explain the six actions, and that you do this because why, what, why? And I, constant questions. I mean, mechanically, it's actually quite a simple game. You know, it's it's light, medium weight. I'd say. Would that be fair? I would say, yeah, definitely. Why sixty minutes into the game am I still getting basic rules questions? Because the whole thing is an absolute thematic dog's dinner it's it's a fire in a tire yard i cannot comprehend how this theme was attempted to be so horribly pasted on in fact it's the worst example of theme use i have ever ever seen in a game and not because it's offensive or anything like that because it absolutely nonsensical makes it a barrier to entry beyond what it should be wow i wasn't expecting that level it's horrific (laughs) the the theme is horrific doesn't make any sense whatsoever hands i've got how many hands why why are two of them do why this doesn't make sense right okay taking that on board no no there was there were some positives and we'll get to those later but one of the things again I was looking forward to was variety. Now, I thought I would have uh, freedom to choose my own crew, and you can at the beginning of the game. <laughs> you can choose more crew. <laughs> In fairness, you can choose who to upgrade. So you do get you can to choose, choose. You can choose who to upgrade. You, you can also you can choose to upgrade your ships. And none of these were lies, but they really weren't as exciting as I thought they'd be. The, oh, the ship no. upgrades really they're quite bland. No, take me to task on this. Are you? Especially about the crew, because certain crew are easier to upgrade than others, so you're kind of waiting to save up to upgrade ones because they'll give you spectacular powers that you really want, but is it worth spending third of the game to get that particular one power? I found that the crew upgrade was amongst the most interesting parts of the game, and I generally, I don't mean that mealy-mouthed. I know what the theme is horrible. Forget that. Let's talk mechanics now. 
I thought the crew upgrade was a genuinely I interesting decision. I thought it was decision. obvious. I thought it was obvious what you had to upgrade. The point scoring one crew, because if you take the basic setup, before you sort of know the game, you, you, you've got a basic setup of, of crew, and they come in groups, and you don't draft as, as you're encouraged to do later on. Each one of those sets has a an end game scoring card, which you pretty much do have to upgrade because it's going to give you some nice points at the end of the game. And each one of those sets has that big superpower. And if you can get that early doors, it's going to make a big difference. Yeah, but can you get it early doors? And certainly with more players, it's actually quite hard to chain these together because there is definitely a... Two or three chains available where if I link this to link that to do this first to get that, so I get those to put in there to hand in for that contract, so I put those to get in there to boost up to get my upgrade. There are links, it's actually one of the issues you have once you're playing with four players, which is the max. Actually, the rundles get really tight and really gammed up. Yeah, this is the thing for me, I've played the vast majority of my games of this at two players. So I, w- I want to pick your brains a little bit for four players because I've never played four player. So I want, I want to know what this game is because I could see things being better at the higher player count, obviously, with that to and fro and that trying to set each other up to, to get your own move in and to stop other people getting the move that they want. I think that sounds a lot more interesting with the higher player counts. I'll do your deal. Go on then. I'll split the difference. You should play it three player. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> with with four player, it can just whiz around too quickly, and you can have set yourself up for a particular move, and maybe you're you're loaded up with cubes, or you, it more actually harder is you haven't got any cubes, and it whizzes past the, the collection area, and you're like, oh crap! The three things I can get to, or the four things I can get to in any of these rundles, all require me to have some cubes, and I don't have any. What am I going to do? Four feels really almost frustratingly tight at times. Yeah, because there are certain actions that are only available on one of the three rondels. So, yeah, once you go past that, it's just... You actually can't get back round to it again. It's not like, oh, I'll pay extra. You just can't get there. So if that was the next move you had to make, and obviously people are looking and going... You don't know exactly what people are trying to do, but you can look and go, oh, yeah, I need that, I need that, you need that, right. I'm definitely going to grab it then so that you can't get it. So, but, But it is very interesting, the fact that all the three of the rundles are involved and everyone's using all three of them and it's been nicely balanced that way and that the timing comes around that, yes, I need that one now and then I need the left-hand one, now I need the right-hand one. That mechanism, I think, is quite clever. I'm not sure it's perfect and it's balanced and that everything flows as it should. All the time I was playing it, I just had small little things that I felt like could have been smoothed off. It always felt a bit NSK-ish, mate. Yeah, to a degree, I think it Which does we're now hate. using as an objective, by the way. <laughs> well, they don't exist anymore, so... <laughs> it does hang its hat on that one mechanism rather heavily, doesn't it? So if that one mechanism doesn't quite work, there's nothing else that's going to rescue the game, is there? No, but it, but it nearly does. It nearly does, yeah. I, I agree, I agree. It, does, it nearly does, but it just... Most of the time, it's an interesting puzzle... And there's some spatial interest in where you put things in. And there's the need to specialise. You, you, you'll you never be able to hold enough of each colour of cube to be able to do the bigger actions. So you have to go, oh, I'm specialising in green, I'm specialising in orange, right? And then the other players can see that and they can attempt to take those scoring opportunities out of the game. And also your crew 
can give you extra stuff for collecting greens, for example, or help you with greens or help you with oranges or whatever color it might be. And other players can know that as well. And therefore they will react to what you're doing. And with the Rondle, I found that there was a nice level of interactivity between the players around the table in playing it. Whereas in other games that are similar, it could be quite solitaire. We say it quite often, this this phrase, but it doesn't outstay its welcome. It does play quite quickly and it's, it, it's done and dusted quite quickly. Yeah, so... Scorpius Freighter for me, Sean. 80% of it I enjoyed a lot mechanically. There was 20% that I felt needed to be rubbed and, and oiled and fit back together slightly more smoothly moving. The whole thing felt a bit like a prototype to me that hadn't gone through the full finishing process. It needed to be dressed, it needed to be nurtured. So Scorpius Freighter ends up being a near miss. Lots of enjoyable parts to it but it needed more care to fully get to being a really good game. So for me, I came in, as we know, it was it was my most excited uh, game that I was most excited for going into Essen. So I think some of the judgment I give here is obviously going to be in reflection to it being a little bit disappointing off the back of that. It didn't look or feel like the game I wanted it to be. Now, that aside, I did have some fun playing this. The the Rondell actions, they are interesting. They don't always work. You can get sort of left high and dry just uh, by negative, someone just being negative. The different things that you can bring into your, your freighter itself weren't different enough. There was a lot of multiple copies of the same things so it just didn't have that variety I didn't I felt like the the crew were fairly obvious in what you have to do so it really did hang its hat on that rondel action and it wasn't quite good enough to bring the game up to a level where I was, would be sort of quite excited about it it's fine I'll play it but yeah it could do a little, little bit TLC and that's Scorpius Freighter don't you go chasing waterfalls now <laughs> I'll try not to. All right, left eye. Okay, (laughs) our penultimate game this time around is Australia. Designed by Martin Wallace from Stronghold and Shillmill Games, wonderful players taking around 90 minutes to play maybe two hours. The old ones, Cthulhu-esque, have been driven back to the outback of Australia. And the travel ban that they had imposed on humans in a study in Emerald has been lifted. And now people are looking to develop Australia and industrialise it. When they get there, they find that their territory has been overrun by old ones. And the players are going to be looking to develop a rail network to mine the natural resources of Australia, to create farms for sheep and cattle and corn, all the while being aware that the old ones are getting woken up by this human activity on their continent and they will be coming after you as the game goes onwards, looking to gobble up that which you have built, sucking up your points as we go. And in fact, the old ones will be scoring points and it's possible for the old ones to win this game in the end. Sean, Australia, one which... Apparently you were more excited for than I was excited for, which I don't understand because I thought I was excited for it, but you keep telling me that you dibsed on it. First thing <laughs> is the whole thing is driven by a time mechanism. So players have got their own little board and it's got various actions on there that's going to let them build their rails and swap resources and farm and mine and collect character cards and build up their fighting forces and then take those fighting forces to attack out. Each of those actions costs a certain amount of time. 
and akin to what a scoring track would be is a time track in this game and when you spend the time you move your double forward and the hindmost player then takes the next turn and however much time they spend if they catch up to everyone else then the hindmost player again is going to take their turn that is a mechanism i absolutely love in almost any game I've ever come across in. I really just think it adds interest and excitement and a real ebb and flow. And interestingly, in this game, once you all get to a certain time point, Cthulhu and the old ones themselves will start taking their own actions, driven by a deck. You've got a load of face-down old one tiles on the board, seeded in a particular manner, very set up for every game, very, very set up. And they will start flipping over and then they will start moving and moving towards the nearest developments and farms and looking to attack and defeat the players. And the whole thing, Sean, the whole time pressure, the use of time for the actions, and the fact Cthulhu is also using time to take actions, that is the main mechanism, and I love it. Hate it. Absolutely. You hate it. hate it. Hate it. Get out. Hate out. it. That's it. No, I, I'm muting you. I'm editing this. And it you're is muting for the, the rest most of frustrating, boring, cruddy mechanism for, for turn order. So if I do something interesting and jump ahead, I'm sitting around watching you guys play turn after turn after turn while I'm doing nothing. Frustrating. Then towards the end of the game, when everything's starting to ramp up and naturally your excitement is building and you, and you are more eager for your go, then the old ones start coming in and it's even longer between, between your turns. So basically I've got to do boring little incremental moves to try and get another turn. I don't like it at all. I think we should record two separate tracks at this stage. And I'll put yours out and I'll put mine out because I'm not sure we can ever talk to each other ever again. Good. It suits me. You smell. <laughs> well, that's definitely got personal there. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll, I'll try you on a different slant. Let's see if I can get you on a more positive foot. Although I feel like maybe I can't here. The old ones, their actions are deck-driven. So when they wake up, is deck-driven, although it is seeded. Which of them are going to move is also deck-driven on each turn. So every time you go through the moves, you flip over a couple of cards, and certain ones, if they're awake on the board, will start moving. They'll always move towards the nearest farm. If there's a tie, you roll a die, and it resolves. No, you don't. It's on the card. I'm sorry. And it resolves which direction they're going to go in. It's unpredictable, and to me, it makes the world itself feel alive. It's something I like in any medium is that the world is doing its own thing and we have to react to what the game is doing. Yeah, okay, so it ties in in the theme, which I absolutely love this idea of this uh, sort of rural farming community in, in Australia being plagued by Migos and, and all the weird and wonderful things from Lovecraft. I love it. I really like the theme. I think a little bit of disconnect. Why, why is Cthulhu randomly waking over because someone plows a field? I don't know. But anyway, so... It's Cthulhu's last stand, man. He's been driven back to desperation. He's a cornered rat. A cornered okay. tentacled rat. <laughs> I do, yeah, I do like it. I do like the unpredictability. I think it makes it a very tactical game. I think you can manipulate that to a certain degree. You can deliberately awaken them to score yourself points. You can deliberately channel them towards other people to try and A, protect yourself, B, scupper their plans a little bit. So I think it becomes a very tactical game and I think it, it benefits from that unpredictability that actually is quite predictable in the end. The fact that you can wake them up 
So you've got different units you can have. So you can build airships, and airships, you can only ever go from your own infrastructure. So you can't reach any any area of the board, but airships have got the longest range. And if you build slightly into the deeper outback and you have airships, you can just go and do a dink-dink attack on something that's over there and wake it up and it'll start going towards someone else's farm. The problem you've got there is that actually in defeating the old ones, and this is what makes the semi-co-op thing work, in my opinion, can score you an absolute ton of points. And you're taking the risk that actually, if that person can defeat that old one and some other ones, they're going to be so far ahead in points that no matter what I'm doing with my farms and mines and stuff over here, I'm not going to catch them up. The other risk that you run is that if we don't wake up enough of them, or that person is unable to defeat the monsters I've sent their way, and even one monster of the level three, which is the highest level, yeah, can well, be yeah, really challenging. Because they're going to win, or that they're going to win. So yeah, they're going to win. Exactly, yep. because they'll just march along their farms, get to their port, they've got no forces left, the port gets destroyed, that's game over. And the game can be finished suddenly and then everyone adds up their points. But generally if Cthulhu has done that, and this is a very rare game state, they're going to have enough forces on the board that they'll score points for all of their forces and double for their unwakened ones. And we're all in trouble. So you can't just wake up loads of stuff and really annoy another player because you're going to lose doing that anyway. Yeah, oh, for sure. It's it's a definitely clever mechanism within the game to have Cthulhu able to actually win the game or the, the monsters able to win we'll the game. We'll just call him Cthulhu. It's fine. Everyone knows yeah, what you're talking about. Then, yeah, it's, it's definitely an extra layer to think about. It's very Martin Wallace where you, you are laying railways and, and track down and you are building your farms, but there is always that... that something a bit weird and wonderful happening around you. I mentioned different units there, for example, the airships, but you can have trains that can only defend your own areas, or you can have infantry or armour cars, different types. They are of varied efficacy against the different units they can encounter. So an infantry is no good against a pyramid, but an artillery will be very good against a pyramid, whereas an airship might be better against a Migo up in the air, the infantry would be no good against, whatever it might be. Those, that, that... That guide bore no fruit for me at all. <laughs> Just for getting one game, you got a little <laughs> bit bitter because you got bad runs. And what happens is you get a guide that tells you this unit is generally better against that sort of an enemy. And for attacks, you flip over from the card deck, the same card deck that generates the O1 movement, and it tells you, oh, if this unit is in the battle, it damages the old one. However, the old one does this much damage back to you, be it on airships or your sanity or on your ground forces. And you're making decisions then when you wish to retreat and what have you. <laughs> I really like that comment mechanism. Now, I know that you came a cropper with some bad luck in one of our <laughs> original that, games. Yeah, the bad luck, the bad luck's fine. Yeah, that happens. It was funny. Uh, that, that's fine. My, my problem with the combat mechanism is it starts out quite exciting. You're turning over the cards and you're quite, oh, what am I going to get? What am I going to get? If you are quite combat heavy, by your like 10th or 12th battle, it's quite boring. You're just turning over a card, turning over a card, turning over a card, turning over a card. You're just going through that deck constantly. And it's, it's a very monotonous mechanism within the game. And by the end of it, I didn't want to attack because I was just bored of attacking. How long does a combat take? Out on the outside, the longest combat you've ever seen? I don't know, three, four minutes. Two minutes. 
two, three, four minutes. But still, if I'm having multiple ones and those in the game, just turning over card, turn over card, turn over card, it loses its excitement level. The, the theatre. The theatre. It loses the theatre. So it loses the theatre. How can it. that lose the theatre? But you're happy to roll dice a hundred times in a game. I don't know. I like dice. Because I, like <laughs> I, like so I put up with you because you got a cubic head. So it's quiet. <laughs> Oh, personal again. What's up with you, man? <laughs> Jeez, go have some sugar. Okay. We've, we've you really don't of... need to tell me to have some sugar. <laughs> <laughs> we've kind of brushed over something that's really important and, in fact, definitely drives your own strategy in the game, and that's the character cards. They are varied. You don't know how, which ones are going to come out at certain times. They are important. They will help shape what army units you have, which in turn will shape your strategy. They will tell you if certain farms will be useful to you. They can help guide you exactly where you are going to be most effective, which you will then put into use because it's not actually that long a game. And just two, three cards can really say, you know what, now your airships take extra damage, do extra damage, do an automatic damage. You are now a mobile airship raiding party, sky pirates going out and doing it. Or cattle farms score double. When your farms get attacked, you fight back. Something else. I'm now a cattle farmer. And I'm going to try and do that. It's actually difficult to farm monoculture because it costs you gold to repeat actions unless you clear your board. But anyway, the character cards, to me, put the level of strategy in that stops it being too tactical. Yeah, I think they are very interesting. They do kind of drive your decisions. Slight issue in the the, the print on them is quite small. So there's always a row out. And if you're not next to them, you're constantly having to stand up to read them, the new ones that come out, etc. But that's a small it's a small quibble. But yeah, they certainly are interested and they certainly just change the gameplay enough to stop it being a, com- a complete sort of tactics fest. Okay. I'm going to throw one to you that... I expected you to have thrown at me already because I'm pretty sure you're going to savage this bone. You get attacked by a level 3 old one that has 12 health. I hit it once with an airship for one damage. You hit it for 11 damage. We get an equal number of points. (laughs) Do you know what? I've forgotten about that. Oh, man, I thought you were just going to scrub in hard on that point. You raise a you raise a good point. That is quite frustrating. That is frustrating. <laughs> no matter who's done damage, the points are divided equally upon the number of players who've done damage, and they all get equal points. So if you are those sky pirates raiding airships, you can just go around and dink, dink, dink everything on the board, and you just you know that player is like, oh, if I defeat this, and I have to defeat it, or it's going to kill me, you're going to get as many points as I am, and I'm burning up action after action to defeat it. That is the one thing that I see that hasn't been smoothed and refined and could be irritating. So I, I've, and again, I've worked my fingers to the bone turning over those cards. I've got paper cuts. Oh. <laughs> the horror of my three-minute-long combat. Oh. <laughs> You're a funny one, honestly. Do you want to give us your final thoughts on Australia? Okay, so Australia, I really do like the theme. I think generally it's it's a very good game. I enjoyed my games of it, but the couple of things that irritate me mechanism-wise, I don't like the time track. It did really frustrate me. I found that I was watching the game more than playing the game, and... I couldn't have an interesting turn without having to pay the penalty of not having another turn for a little while. That I found that frustrating. I I did find 
the combat repetitive and monotonous. So it would have been a top game for me, but it's just dragged down by those couple of mechanisms that just frustrated me. So it's a game I'd definitely play again. I do like the tactical side of it. We, me and Sir and Ronan were kind of arguing about whose copy it was. Ronan, it is your copy. Thank you, Shawnee. Because <laughs> I love it. I'm sure you picked that up from what I was going on about. I think it's a fantastic blend of mechanisms. It's really interactive, but you're not messing directly with each other. You're just creating threat and difficult situations. The fact that the semi-cult works is so unusual that it is to be cherished. The fact that you get bonuses if you screw a little bit with other people, but you may open them up to their corridor to win. The fact that if you you want to do a large attack with huge forces or go for a huge amount of farming that can take you out of the game for a while and you're putting yourself at risk and you won't be able to react if the old ones do something unexpected to you or if someone looks and goes hold on you've taken a three time action boom i'm waking that up next to you good luck with that hit <laughs> i find the combat deck really excited i think this is an excellent game of absolutely enjoyed every game of it and intend getting many many more games of it in and that is australia cool so our last game of the episode is raccoon tycoon designed by the very famous glenn drover and coming from forbidden games and this is set in the anthropomorphic world of astoria which is booming with growth and factories new towns and railroads we are business tycoons looking to make our fortune out of the boom. So on the table you have six sets of commodities. You have a central board that's going to track those commodity prices. It's going to hold railroad cards and town cards, plus building tiles. And the aim of the game is to make as much money as possible. During gameplay, you're going to do certain actions. Now, you've got production. This is going to allow you to raise the price for commodities in the top half of a card, production card and take three of the commodities shown on the bottom half of the card. So you're going to raise ones and take them and you're trying to obviously raise the ones that you have the majority in, etc. You can sell those commodities of one type for the price on the chart you can trigger a railroad auction and why you want to bring railroads into your hand is for set collection points at the end of the game now i mentioned buildings you can buy a building and these are going to give you bonuses and powers throughout the game and you can buy a town and towns don't you don't buy them for money you buy them for resources and towns are worth straight up points and they can be paired with the railroads for more points at the end of the game and the game scoring is for your town cards and railroad sets. Uh, you have your buildings, which are a point each, and some of them have end of game scoring. And as I said, you can pair those town and railroad cards. A very simple game that came out of left field for me, Ronan. I didn't know much about it going into Essen, but I certainly know a little bit more about it now. Yeah. So I put Raccoon Tycoon on the table, and I got out the rule book. And I just learned the rules, which actually took me very little time, which is a positive. And I looked at it and I shook my head and went, why has Sean given me this pointlessly basic game? <laughs> so I take this commodity, I sell that commodity, I buy that, that scores me some points. This very basic. looks like it's going to be incredibly dull. Why is he forcing me to play this? Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I had similar questions when I brought it out on my table. I was like, mm, why, why have I got this now? <laughs> then I started playing it with four other gamers, proper gamers, that, you know, full proper gamers. That's mean. Hobby gamers, people who play a certain, you know, a decent number of games. Decent. How do I say this without sounding mean? <laughs> people who are interested in the hobby game. Right? Regular players. Regular player. Regular. Uh, there's nothing regular in my t-shirt drawer, mate. Um, <laughs> and it, it kind of, they looked at me and I explained it and it took very little time to explain it. And they were like, okay. And they knew how it all works. It was all completely intuitive to a gamer. And you go, yeah, okay, great. Got this. Yeah. We went a couple of rounds around the table and it was like, yeah. Okay, yeah, fine. Right, yeah. Then someone bought a building, which means they were now different to everyone else around the table, and everyone else went, oh, hold on. That means that you can, every time you start an auction, you're going to make money. Yeah. And then someone else bought a building that meant they could buy commodities from another player. And then someone else suddenly sniped in and sold a load of wood before you could when you were trying to save wood for something else. And suddenly the price of wood has crashed, and suddenly you're there going, hold on. And the key to this was, firstly, growing asymmetry between the players. We had different things we wanted to do. We had different buildings with different powers. And we had different ways of getting there. That's tick. Huge. Suddenly, we're, And it's not forced asymmetry. We're not given, this is your faction. These are your special powers. This is the route along which you must go. No. Okay, that's one way of asymmetry. It's not my favourite one. It's player-driven asymmetry. And suddenly I have created the way in which I am going to do well in this game. And I can continue making those decisions. And I'm not locked down a particular route. And I can choose whether to spend this money or keep it for in-game scoring. Or is that building worth it? Or hold on, that auction's going mental, but I really need that railroad. And then what dawns on you is that, okay, so... I don't know. Ronan's got Fat Cat Railway. Oh, he's got he's got one of those already. Oh, hang on. There's an auction for Fat Cat Railway. What, oh, oh, right. We can't let Ronan get that. But do I have enough money? Right. Then all of a sudden you're thinking, right. Well, Ronan's managed to get that because he had the most money. But we can't. We've got to be prepared if if another Fat Cat Railway comes up, he can't get that because that's a lot of points at the end of the game for him. And then very simple mechanisms. All of a sudden, are generating table talk, people groaning, people laughing, people trying to garner support in their ideas. And all of a sudden, you've got a social gaming experience where everyone's actually enjoying. Exactly. And the key to it is that really, really simple base that everyone can see. And what it means is that everyone can see the repercussions of what everyone else is doing. It's not obfuscate it's not arcane you're not like oh so that does that to turn that into this to turn it in eight stages it's oh hold on there's an auction coming there's a fat cat ronan wants it no one's got much money he's sitting on eight iron fine i sell my two iron next player sells their two iron next player sells their three iron ronan's eight iron are now worth eight money <laughs> thanks everyone i hate you all but we can all see what's going on. And the third person is making a decision to sell their iron for less to prevent me from having money to get the auction. And it's clear. I go, all right, fine. Then I'm going to buy this building that you all didn't buy because you're so busy selling your iron. Oh, no, we should have let him get that. Now that combos with this to do that. But all really clear and open. Sean, what did you do to me? 
I was so low when I first opened the box. <laughs> and I was so high halfway through the first game. It's just a very clever framework, almost, of mechanisms. And it, I think it serves two purposes. I think it does work with seasoned gamers, but it also literally teaching you certain mechanisms. It's teaching you stock market. It's teaching you economy. It's, it's teaching you auctions. Like, very simply... So anybody can join this game and enjoy it from the start. Every copy of Monopoly in the whole world overnight should be replaced by Raccoon Tycoon. (laughs) That is a big statement. Every single copy and the world will be a happier place and we'll have happier children and happier families who are sharing good times. It is that level. Just to dive in, the production values on this game are amazing. It's lovely. I mean... I don't know how amazing, bud. For what it is... Really nice. Beautiful components. Everything's clear. Really creepy animal artwork <laughs> for the railroad. So, you know, that definitely takes what, half a mark. What's that start player marker? <laughs> the massive thing. What's that? Yeah, it's a massive chunk of wood. Like, massive. And it doesn't move anywhere. It's just a lump of wood. <laughs> like, but then I, I started thinking, like, that's ridiculous. But then I thought, you know what? Why not? Why not make the start player obvious? That's the whole and point of it. It's doing its job. <laughs> it's, it's being very I mean, obvious. It doesn't move. It doesn't player. do anything. It just sits there, so it may as well be heavy. It's like a table anchor. <laughs> Donk. There you go. There you moving. <laughs> but it's such a nice production. It's so easy to teach. It develops at its own pace. Players will dawn and start doing their own things. I'm so pushed to fault this as... An entry-level game, a gateway game, a family game, a next-step game, a casual game, and a game in which gamers can be absolutely horrible to each other and laugh about it and not get frustrated and always have a route out in which they can think their way out of a situation and gain an edge elsewhere by buying something else or screwing something else up or stopping this and also, you've got that thing that you always talk about where you're constantly improving and you're getting better and you're getting more buildings and more stuff and you feel like you're really progressing and the game gathers pace to the end. Do you think it's group dependent? Do you think that there's going to be maybe a little bit of snobbery about this one? I, I think those are two different questions. I think they'll definitely be snobbery about it. I think the fact that it's called Raccoon Tycoon doesn't help because people are... I know when I've mentioned a game called Raccoon Tycoon, people have turn their nose up and gone really raccoon tycoon the whole cutesy thing they expect it to be a bit sillier i i would think that maybe root would help with that that yeah, people are like yeah. well just because it's got that theme it's, it's an accessible theme right and i know that it worked really well for me getting and i know this is a stereotype i'm sorry but it did help get some females to play it where they're like oh raccoon tycoon i'll play that a head off i'll play it Railways of the Isle of Wight, which it could have been called, and they'd have been like. The thing for me was having Glenn Drover's name attached to it. Well, that didn't work with female casual gamers, mate. No, no, fair enough. No, no, for me, (laughs) for me, it kind of it just kind of offset my snobbery a little bit. The thought, oh well, it's Glenn Drover, so let's give it a go. I think it's a curious name choice, but it kind of works in that it's got that gentle opening and i think it works for casual gamers that you're like oh it's about animals it can't be that serious the rules can't be that hard okay we'll give it a go and it eases them into what you were saying proper 
gaming mechanism, which can be as complicated as you want them to be. And you control your destiny. And if you want to have a tableau of eight buildings that have multiple combos on them, go for it. If you want to have two buildings, an auction in which you're trying to collect all of one line, and that's what you're focused on, you can also go for that. And you can play it to whatever makes you happy. Is that your summing up? It's a family-level game which can be enjoyed by all gamers. It's all player-driven. It is all very good. And thank you for giving me Australia. We might have to fight over the copy of this. (laughs) So for me, actually, weirdly, I kind of feel like the the really nice production of this game will put actually some some gamers off because they'll just assume that it is style over substance. But what you have here is a very competent game that pulls a load of mechanisms together that are platforms for a good time to be had by all. I think it's more than the sum of its parts and a a fantastically simple but great game. That's Raccoon Tycoon. And just to say one further point on that, the fact that we both came to the same conclusion, this is one of the games that we never played together. True. Yeah, this can't yeah. be groupthink here. This is you played it completely separately, handed it over to me. We didn't get a chance. We played other stuff, and then I played it with separate groups. And no one complained about it. Everyone liked it. So I really think, that, yeah, this is surprisingly strong. Very good. And that was our final game. And we will see you in the outro for our top threes of the episode. Oh yeah, top three. Woo woo. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for those six reviews. A varied bunch, Sean. It was a varied bunch, Ronan. I think I was quite surprised that uh, the the levels of your love and vitriol at some of the, some of those games. I'm having the feels today, Sean. I'm on it. I am. My highs and lows are peaking and troughing. <laughs> More troughing than peaking. Oh, there was a few. Well, I think it was a strong ending to the show. I think it was. Um, yeah, a show of two halves, I'd say. There were two, I don't know. There's a game I clearly didn't like. There were two that could have done better, and then there were a clear three that I did like that I'm having to uh, organise into my top three, which I, I in the end, actually, it wasn't that hard to separate them, but that's because of their quality as opposed to having to chuck a mediocre one in there. Go on, then. Are we, are we flying straight into them, are we? Let's do it. What's your, okay. What is your number three, Ronan? My number three is probably the game, if you looked at them all beforehand, that you would say I was most likely to like. I do like it, but perhaps slightly edges more towards tactical than strategic, and it's Underwater Cities is my number three game for the show. I found it very hard to choose a number three. but Because? Because... There were three games that I kind of like, but all had flaws. So what I've done is I've gone for the game that had the the higher highs, shall we say. And my number three is Australia. Good to know. My number two would probably be the game that you'd have thought I'd least like. <laughs> we're coming in on this, but it made a huge impression. And I think really deserves to get widespread player and a widespread audience and I hope will be some sort of sleeper hit and it's Raccoon Tycoon a fantastic economic game 
Ronan, I think we might have a three-way tie for the game of the episode. You and me going to fight again. <laughs> also, you can't count, but carry on. Uh, I, I, what, what, what are the points we give? Is it, is it three for one? and It's three and a half for my one and three for yours. Two yeah, and a half yeah. for my two and two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go on, mate. I think, I think we're going to have a four-pointer. My number two is Raccoon Tycoon. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Really good production. Really good game. And yeah, it's it thoroughly deserves any praise it gets. You always ruin our top threes. You know that. You ruin all suspense. <laughs> People might not realise that I was going to pick Australia as my number one. Yeah, oh yeah. No, nobody would have guessed that. I love it. I love it. It's just so good. <laughs> when we uh, when we do get to do our top ten of twenty eighteen, which if you've listened for a while, you know it will come up around May, June, July time, something like that. We want to give a big long run for the 2018 games to get played before we look back. I fully anticipate Australia's being the top 10 and in the higher echelons at the moment of that. It's my number one game for this episode, which means yours is a bit damp. It is a bit damp. It's underwater cities. I um more and more enjoying my games of it. I'm discovering more things. Yeah, not perfect, but none of the games have been perfect in in this episode. But Underwater Cities is certainly the most interesting and one I've had the most enjoyment with. So that's my number one for the episode. I feel like for our game of the episode, in this situation, we haven't talked about it, but maybe we just choose the game that we both chose second because that's the one that we both thought was good enough to be in the top two. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm happy with that. Lovely. Which would make our game of the episode a surprise. <laughs> Raccoon Tycoon. There you go. We, we wouldn't have picked that out before we did the playing and reviewing. Or not ten minutes into the first game of it, either. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out, I did, when you chose this to review, genuinely, because obviously we text each other, these are the three games we're going to review for the next load of reviews. I was just shaking my like, what kind of idiocy have you plonked? <laughs> Why is Raccoon? I'm not playing Raccoon. Tycoon. Normally you're bang on the money, but every now and again I pull a, I pull a good one out. <laughs> well, you did with that one. So thank you for making me play that game. Um, actually, thank you for playing Scorpius Freight because I did enjoy it and it is unique. It's just a bit frustrating and obviously the theme, but good gone. Not so much. <laughs> uh, Google was my number four, I think. It was close to being my, in my top three. Ah, oh, no, yeah, Scorpius was my number four. Google was uh, six. <laughs> six? Well, worse than Guardians. Yeah, Guardians is not a bad game. Guardians is okay, but okay comparative to the other games that are too basic metric is, is in effect rubbish. But when I played it, it was like, yeah, it's okay. Google, I was actually getting stressed i was actually like oh god maybe that's why i enjoyed it so much just watching you (laughs) actively not enjoying myself and (laughs) it's not often i'll play a game and i'm i'm actually because i like gaming as much as i might moan a lot about games on the show and stuff like that and i sound sometimes it's hard to balance where i'm coming from on the reviews because i'm looking at really really good games and they're the ones i say really good and the other games aren't quite as good i'm like I need to be, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm a bit harsher on them maybe, but in terms of Gugong, I actively was not enjoying myself. I wasn't at first. I will. I, I know where you're coming from. I understand it because I, I had those feelings, but I kind of, 
I think probably because I spent money on it and because it's such a beautiful game, I thought, right, now I need to try and get my money's worth out of this game. Let me come at it from a different angle. And I started seeing things that I hadn't seen before. Okay. So, so I could appreciate, because you've played it more than I have, you've had more of a development with the game. I I tried to, mate. I tried to play it more times. But once I'd played it twice, I was like, I just... I can't make myself play it again. So, so not everything's for everyone, as we always say. Not everything's for everyone. Generally, the game pit is for everyone. <laughs> I mean, everyone enjoys the game pit. I don't know what you're I've tried to about. ban you a few times, but it's never quite worked. <laughs> That's a 50-50 co-ownership, buddy. <laughs> right, we should probably let people go. So thank you very much, Ronan. Thank you, Sean. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And... We will be back, hopefully, relatively shortly with a new style of episode we've been brewing up over Christmas. Indeed. And I just hope Ronan doesn't get the title that he wants. Pitspit! Pitspit! Oh, my God. It's just, <laughs> it sounds even worse now. You're trying to think of a name where we're in the pit and we're just having a chat about games and stuff and things around games. We're just, you know, spitting it out. Pitspit. As opposed to what we normally do, just spit on each other. <laughs> from from 200 miles away, you weirdo. Anyway, <laughs> see us out. As always, the Game Pit is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our episodes, we're on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. And we're also on social media we have a facebook account we are on instagram and of course we are on twitter at game pit podcast if you wish to contact us we are on the email address of the game pit podcast at gmail.com or an even better way of getting hold of us is to pop along to board game geek to our guild there we'll be happy to have a chat with you there we don't just have a podcast we also have a youtube channel where we have our pit stop videos where overviews of a wide variety of games and we also have convention coverage thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time music by e Aaron. Bye. 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 Bye.